Um, thank you again for coming. It is, it is an honor. It's not a huge crowd, but it's an honor uh, to have you guys who came because um, a ragtag few of us, you know, just had been thinking through things for uh, some years. And we decided that maybe it'd be helpful to share it with some other folks and run our ideas by you. And so we welcome your interaction with our ideas. We have uh, time for Q&A at the end. Nothing controversial is gonna be said here, so I doubt there won't be. I, there might be some questions, we'll see. Um, but each speaker is, is given about 30 minutes and if they go a little bit long, it's okay, but at 35 minutes, I'm gonna hook them off the stage. But that Q&A session at the end is kind of a flex time for us. Um, I wanna mention that each speaker is speaking for himself only. Um, that's the little qualifier here. And um, let's see, what other housekeeping things are there? I believe that's it. Let me introduce myself in case you don't know me. I'm Jeremy Bunch, I've lived here in Moscow with my family for, I believe it's 11 years now. And so we're just starting to get used to this and, um, and the beautiful winter weather of Moscow. So let's dive right in. I'm kind of giving an introductory talk on George Buchanan. As you can see, we've called this the, the George Buchanan Forum. And so I want to uh, provide a brief historical sketch of Buchanan's life and times and discuss his monumental work in regard to his political theory, namely his brief treatise entitled De Iuri Regni Apudscotos Dialogus, or translated into English, A Dialogue Concerning the Due Privilege of Government in Scotland. And I'm gonna simplify it further by just referring to it as the dialogue. And then finally, I want to explain why we've named this forum after the man George Buchanan. So I want to touch on the high points of Buchanan's life and career, but to be honest, much of his life is, um, the history of it is kind of scarce in some times and in some areas. He traveled extensively on the European continent, but much of the motivations for those travels are hazy at best. I should mention, we do know that Buchanan was born in 1506 in Scotland into a family line that was, in his own words, more ancient than opulent. They were not a wealthy family. Buchanan's father died at an early age, and his, um, between the dealings of his father and his grandfather, they had virtually left the household bankrupt. Buchanan's mother uh, raised five sons, Buchanan being the youngest of those boys, and there were three daughters. He grew up in Stirlingshire, uh, which was Clan Lennox territory and Buchanan therefore acquired some level of loyalty to the Lennox line and land, and this would become quite an important fact in his life later on. He showed great promise as um, a youngster in his schooling, but his family would not have the means to really jumpstart his career, uh, his academic career, getting him into the universities. If it hadn't been for his uncle on his mother's side who financed Buchanan's education in Paris between 1520 and 1522. So Buchanan was 14, 16 years of age at that time and who wouldn't want an all expenses paid trip to study abroad in Paris. Except of course, this is the early 16th century and so I think it helps to remember the conditions of the day in order to help us get the full context. This was his first stint in Paris as a youngster, and he would end up spending much of his life in France. Um, but it found him crammed in, like literally crammed in with a whole bunch of other wild boys, often ill, his age. 
and discipline for any sin, great or small, was met with pretty harsh punishment by the schoolmasters. That's how it was done then. But nonetheless, Buchanan excelled in his schooling, and he returned to Scotland to attend St. Andrews. And while at St. Andrews, Buchanan sat under the tutelage of John Mayer. John Mayer was a famous Scottish theologian, philosopher, and historian, and argued such things as the Pope really ought to submit to the councils of the church. He argued that indigenous peoples um, have legal and natural rights, which became quite an issue uh, during those days with, with, with the ways in which the Spaniards were exploring the Americas. I'll note that John Knox was a contemporary of Buchanan's and also sat and learned under Mayer. Um, Knox and Buchanan would, would end up having very different styles and, and different rhetoric, but I think in both you can see Mayer's influence to some extent. Buchanan achieved his bachelor's degree in 1525 and then, was, and then went back to Paris um, to study or to get his master's degree. He goes back to France with John Mayer. Mayer is taking a, a post as, at a school there. And so Buchanan goes with him and uh, gets his master's degree in 1528. But this was at a time in Paris where a new educational form and methodology, namely the up and coming humanist education was becoming fashionable. So Mayer was of the old school scholastic tradition, what the humanists referred to as logic chopping school. And while the, the scholastic tradition largely aimed for this sort of rationality based um, education to train theologians and doctors and lawyers, the humanists sought to have a well-rounded education based in the humanities, the languages, the ancient literature, and <clears throat> and also the goal to have a more broadly educated citizenry, and maybe even most important, to have kings educated to be moral and reasonable. But for these reasons, Mayer was done in France. His style wasn't really welcomed any longer by those who adopted the, human, the humanist educational format. Meanwhile, Buchanan fell in love with it. <clears throat> Uh, it wasn't long before Buchanan was regarded as a staple figure in the, in the humanist movement, and he became a uh, Latin virtuoso. He was, he was um, un, his, his mastery of the Latin language was really unparalleled at the time. Then from 1528 and the three decades that followed, Buchanan was all over the place. His uncle was no longer supporting him financially. He didn't have any money of his own. And so he obtained work in teaching the humanities or the languages basically wherever he could. But he was like a magnet to royalty. In 1536, he's back home in Scotland and he becomes tutor to one of King James V's illegitimate sons. And one day the king ordered Buchanan to write a couple of relentlessly critical satires against the Franciscans. The local cardinal didn't appreciate this much and Buchanan was expelled from Scotland in 1539. So Buchanan returns to France where he continues to teach and write. He produces a couple of Latin plays, one called Jephtha and another one called The Baptist. And in this work of playwriting, Buchanan really begins to reveal some of his political theory, some of his fundamental questions about the legitimacy of the state, its rulers, and the way they governed. 
1547, Buchanan finds himself in Poland at a humanist college teaching Greek, which he had also mastered. And without a lot of detail, we know that Buchanan was accused of heresy by the Lisbon Inquisition in 1549. And so Buchanan's travels, his work, his acquaintances had certainly brought him into contact with Lutherans and other reformers. So it shouldn't be too surprising that his views on the church might be changing. While in prison, he produced his most uh, popular and most published work, metrical paraphrases of the Psalms in Latin, and that was considered sufficient penance. And Buchanan was released in relatively short time for the crime of heresy. So now it's the 1550s and Buchanan returns to France yet again and there he finds himself amidst the upper class. He begins tutoring the son of a commander of the French troops that are stationed in Italy. He'll travel back and forth quite a bit between northern Italy and France during this time. But this commander had really close ties with the powerful and politically influential Guise family, which if you know your French and Huguenot history, you know that they were, the Guise family was pretty much the arch enemy of the Huguenots. And it's at this point where the real drama in Buchanan's life begins to unfold. So Buchanan has these connections to the Guise family and he ends up getting connected to the French king himself at the time, Henry II, who hires Buchanan to tutor his son, Charles IX. In 1550, uh, yeah, 1557, Buchanan was granted naturalization by the king, which among other things would allow him to enter into the Catholic priesthood, which Buchanan does for some reason, and I'll kind of circle back to that. In 1558, Buchanan was commissioned to write a poem celebrating the marriage of Queen Mary of the Scots, um, who lived in France and actually spent much of her growing up years in France. And she was to be married to Francis, who was heir to the French throne. So Buchanan, now 52 years old at this point in his life, seems to be squarely in the Catholic and pro-monarchical camp, if you will. Buchanan is elated at the union of the Scottish and French thrones, the political implications involved, and of course he's well aware of the religious implications involved. But a couple of years later, King Francis dies in 1560, and Queen Mary and Buchanan would both be making their way home to Scotland. But it's at this time, concurrently, back in Scotland, 59 and 1560, that the Scottish Protestant Rebellion proved successful to an extent. They had set up a provisional government. So this is sort of bad timing, right? Okay, the Scottish Protestants are making some headway and now Catholic Queen Mary is coming home. But there's a plot twist. Buchanan, somewhere in this transition between France and Scotland, converts to Protestantism. And there's more. Once back in Scotland, Buchanan finds himself at the pleasure of the queen serving in her Catholic household, and his Protestantism was not a secret. So what was the cause of his conversion to Protestantism? Well, we don't know. We don't have the details, but we have plenty of evidence that it was truly transformative of Buchanan, and it was genuine. We know this in part through the testimony of those who knew Buchanan. They spoke of his Protestant piety, and because of Buchanan's fervent commitment to the Protestant cause going forward. Historians are pretty well convinced that he joined the priesthood back in France out of economic necessity as much as anything. And we also know from Buchanan himself that in the decade of the 1550s, he dedicated a lot of time in deep theological study trying to weigh out 
the theological issues of the day that's centered around Reformation. So then, Queen Mary of the Scots marries Lord Darnley in 1565, and Darnley was of the Lennox family. So now we've kind of gone full circle to Buchanan's homeland loyalties, and this was very important for Buchanan in his thinking. In 1566, Queen Mary gives birth um, to her son James, and Buchanan is hired to write all of the celebratory verses for the festivals at these honorable occasions. So the marriage of Queen Mary to, to Darnley, and then the birth and baptism of James. In short, Lord Darnley and Queen Mary have a falling out, and a couple of years later he is found dead, murdered, and, and basically right after the murder, Queen Mary marries the Earl of Bothwell, and this just fuels the suspicions that Queen Mary is um, not just a murderer or an accomplice to murder, but she's an adulterer as well. Um, from there, Queen Mary is essentially kicked off the throne. Uh, the drama of her trial and the manner in which she was deposed is a long and thrilling story, but suffice to say this, Buchanan was at the very forefront of the movement to depose the Queen of Scotland, who had every hereditary right to the throne. And Buchanan puts the case together to convict her. But Buchanan's actions, along with the other Protestant reformers of Scotland, revealed an assumption that had been gaining ground in many places where the Reformation was occurring. And that assumption was that the magistrate is accountable to the people that the, the legitimacy to rule is a right that arises from the people and not the other way around. And that's a key theme to understand when studying or analyzing the political theory of the Reformation. Buchanan's dialogue, The Dialogue, was written in 1567, probably just ahead of the Scottish Parliament ratifying Queen Mary's deposition. The dialogue was not widely published and distributed until the latter 1570s, but it quickly gained status as a text that was much desired on the continent for those reformed groups that were facing similar issues with the state. So next, Buchanan is charged, now after Queen Mary is deposed, with the education of and the care of Mary's son, King James VI of Scotland, or as he would later be called, King James I of England, when the two countries are united in 1603. But James receives a first-rate education in the humanities through Buchanan, uh, learning Greek, Latin, poetry, rhetoric, all the things that a good humanist education afforded. The dialogue, again, was written at the time of Mary's deposition, and it was dedicated to James in hopes that James may find its arguments useful and cogent. But in case you're hanging by the seat of your pants, James does not end up ruling according to Buchanan's political theory. Buchanan dies at um, the age of 76 in 1582 and was buried in Greyfriars Kirk. Okay, so that's a brief historical sketch, but um, let's now dive into Buchanan's political theory in the dialogue. I'll give a broader context and then the argumentation. So Buchanan's dialogue is most often categorized as one of the many tracts or treatises that fall under the heading of Calvinist resistance theory. But we'll see that there are major differences. Buchanan was pen pals with Beza and well acquainted with other prominent reformers such as Mornay, and then of course with John Knox himself. But Buchanan's rhetorical approach in the dialogue is sharply distinct from other reformational political tracts and treatises of the day. 
The Reformation, by the very nature of it, brought the role of the state, the role of the magistrate, into sharp focus. And serious foundational questions were being handled by the reformers. How does a state arrive at legitimacy in the first place? How did kings ever become a thing in the first place? And what are the biblical bounds of the magistrate, etc.? And whether on the British Isles or in the many places on the continent where Reformation was taking place, these answers varied. Okay, there's not one consistent, uniform, theological or, or philosophical doctrine of the magistrate that comes out of the Reformation. Geneva had different answers than England. England was different than France. France different than, than Scotland. One of the first things that, that sets Buchanan's dialogue apart from other reformers was the tone or the method. It takes up the Socratic dialogue method where Buchanan is in this made up conversation with another person. That other person happened to be a real person, Thomas Maitland. And as it would turn out, Maitland didn't really appreciate this role. Uh, he ended up being squarely in Catholic Queen Mary's camp. Um, Buchanan's dialogue employs a different approach um, than other reformers. And while it's not absent of theological discussion, it is primarily philosophical in its rhetoric. Buchanan was appealing to reason. And this wasn't just simply his style or fully reflective of his personal convictions or theology, but the broader public in Scotland and, and elsewhere might not have been fully satisfied with the pure status quo Protestant rhetoric as a justification of Queen Mary's deposition. Okay, so everybody on the continent is watching what's happening in Scotland with Queen Mary and her deposition. Queen Mary's rule in Scotland was at an all-time high at the birth of her son, James. Protestants and Catholics were eating and celebrating together at the baptism of James. So it wasn't as if the Scottish Reformation was um, the certain foundation of the future at that time. Buchanan saw two things in relation to the theological rhetoric of political theory of the reformers of his day. The first was that the Lutheran and Calvin treatments, Calvinist treatments of Romans 13 had some transparent inconsistencies. So the basic view that the reformers had largely inherited was that God ordained the magistrate and you pretty much obeyed him unconditionally. There were workarounds that were beginning to be made. But the thinking was, um, during the Reformation especially, that at some point a, a tyrant is so bad that you have to stand up to him sooner or later. So how does that work? Well, Buchanan doesn't enter into these games of finding theological workarounds. Rather, Buchanan, while not fully going into the theological work to show this, basically asserts that Romans 13 doesn't mean what you think it means. You need to take a more historical, grammatical approach to your exegesis. In other words, Romans 13 is not a treatise on God's moral will for the existence of the state, but it was a descriptive writing of the conditions of that day and instructional to the saints on how to respond to those conditions. And the second thing is that while other arguments from the Calvinist resistance theory were largely tied up with ecclesiastical matters so that the political debates were often framed in terms of idolatry versus faithfulness, Buchanan treats the subject more or less as a matter of the rights of kings versus the rights of the people. Okay, so here is the flow of reasoning in the dialogue, and I can only cover so much, so I, I do recommend that you read it when you have time. 
But first he, he asserts the, uh, the authority of natural law. Natural law and reason for Buchanan, and as it finds consistency with special revelation, is a gift from God to be exercised to the end of gaining wisdom and how to rule one's own self and how to interact with others. Buchanan wants no one to underestimate the power of reason to take truths and unpack them as far as possible into the corners of our lives. And for Buchanan, the way that this unfolds is rooted more in the humanist approach than in the scholastic approach. So it's not axiomatic, it's not uh, purely logical deduction, but it's, it draws greatly from history and poetry and from the literature and, and philosophy of the past. He argues that ideally a king is like a wise doctor who ensures that the body of the commonwealth is operating in harmony and is healthy, but granted that such kings hardly ever exist, if at all, we have to do the best that we can with the best that we have. And the best that can be hoped for is that the law will restrain the passions of the king and will, ho and, and will hopefully help the king refuse the flattering lips of evil counselors. Buchanan wants to leave no discretion for a king at all. The law ought to be clear and it ought to clearly restrain the king from his own passions that might lead to tyranny. So the law must be absolute. Okay, but then who makes the law? Well, a king, Buchanan argues, cannot be the one who defines the law and the bounds of the king's authority. That must arise from the people. And there ought to be judges separated completely from the monarchy who have a duty to weigh the actions of kings who are pushing or transgressing the limits of the law. He argues, we know the propensity of politicians to interpret the law in whatever ways benefit them most, so there should be judges to keep a check on this activity. And we'll see in a moment that in Buchanan's mind, a judge could be a very wise and moral man. Maitland argues back to Buchanan that he stripped all practical authority from the king. The king can't legislate, the king can't interpret law, the king can't judge, so what's the point of having a king? Well, Buchanan acknowledges Maitland's argument, agrees with it, but adds that, um, and here he quotes from the poet Claudian, the example set by, king, by a king shapes the world and edicts have less power than the life of their ruler to influence men's feelings. Let me read that again. The example set by a king shapes the world and edicts have less power than the life of their ruler to influence men's feelings. So Buchanan argues that a good king is one of God's greatest blessings to mankind, but the nature of that king is far less authoritative on paper and more a popular figurehead for morality and for conserving good culture and mores. Buchanan then turns to defining a tyrant, which is a great curse where kings go beyond the bounds of the law and serve their own self-interest. Maitland acknowledges that such tyranny is so heinous that a tyrant really forfeits the right to be considered human. Any, any man who acts so contrary to the law, contrary to nature, is beastly, and whoever kills them does a service to the community. And at this point, Maitland argues um, that all of this reasoning has been wonderful. This has been a very valuable conversation in one sense, but there's really no practical application for Scotland where the king's will is as good as law. Buchanan argues back, and it's substantially the point of Buchanan's, um, he, he produced a 20 volume set on the history of Scotland, which goes back a few centuries before the time of Christ up to the, his present day. But his point is that the Scots have a long and proven history of a constitutional monarchy contrary to Maitland's claim. 
Buchanan's historical work served in part, and a very important part, to justify the deposition of Queen Mary. That what they were doing in her deposition was in line historically with similar precedents. Buchanan's arguments are distinct from the Calvinist and Huguenot arguments when it comes to the right to resist a king. The Calvinists want to insist on the role of the lesser magistrates as a certain kind of representative government or aristocracy that holds the best interests of the public. And it's their role to resist the king. And they may do it because they are also authorities ordained by God per Romans 13. And this is an example of kind of the practical workarounds in regard to Romans 13. <clears throat> but Buchanan is far more radically populist, you could say, with no explicit mention that there should or need be any middlemen as lesser magistrates. Remember the humanist um, educational agenda to produce an educated and moral citizenry that can participate in the political life of the community. So Buchanan argues this, but it, at one point he speaks as if there is or ought to be some sort of standing committee that represents the will of the people, that meets with the king to determine the law and the bounds of the king's authority. But this standing committee is not like those who advocated for some form of um, Republican form of government where the representatives are land or estate owners. Rather, Buchanan brings a moral argument forward that an everyday ethical and wise man has every right to represent the people as someone else who is wealthy or has lineage or status. Reasoning forward, Buchanan says that a tyrant, one who has broken the law and in a sense broken the covenant he had with the people to maintain a harmonious society, has become an enemy of the people. And this is an act of war. And he says, it is the right not only of the people as a whole, but also of individuals to kill the enemy. Okay, Maitland suggests that Buchanan has opened the door for, for anarchy, and Buchanan doesn't really disagree. Buchanan argues that he is coming to these conclusions through natural law reasoning and just explaining what men legitimately have a right to do. So he's not, he makes it very clear, I'm, he's not making a call to action for anything specific, but this is where the reasoning takes us. But a man or a group of men who takes the initiative to commit tyrannicide does so with accountability. In other words, their actions may be on trial every bit as much as they put the king on trial. Okay, so that's the, the brief historical sketch of, of Buchanan, the context in which the dialogue was written and the, and the, the basic argumentation of it. I want to close with a summary of the fundamental principles of his reasoning and then want to make a few comments on why we've called this the George Buchanan Forum. So here are Buchanan's fundamental principles. All men are created equal in nature in the sense that people are not born with some inherent legitimate right to rule over other people, but the right to rule must rise from the citizenry. The magistrate must be bound by the law and from a morality perspective, the magistrate must play by all the same moral rules as everyone else. Buchanan, as part of his humanist leanings, believes that proper education plays an enormous role in shaping the, uh, the ideal citizen. One who gains learning is wise and moral, and it is this kind of citizen that keeps the king in check. In other words, why not have as many people as possible keeping the king in check to prevent tyranny. Make that king as nervous as can be with everybody having a right to kill the king if he transgresses the law. So the king must mind his P's and Q's. 
Okay, so why, why have we called this the George Buchanan Forum? Well, it's actually not because we believe in tyrannicide, okay, um, or anything else in particular with Buchanan. Um, although we might find some agreements in, in some of his underlying assumptions for his arguments. Rather, what we're seeking to do here is work towards a consistent outworking of the integration of theology, philosophy, or natural law, and history. This was Buchanan's approach, and though the specifics of his arguments were distinguished, the approach was traditionally and distinctly Scottish. John Mayer, Buchanan's teacher, also wrote a history of Scotland, as history was recognized as a powerful rhetorical force. But the general posture towards the principles of liberty was a differentiation of the Scots philosophers and theologians. And that combined with deliberately working to be consistent, so we're not saying that Buchanan was completely consistent in these areas, but he sought to do it through being consistent in regard to his theology, philosophy, and history. And that's something that we admire about Buchanan. Buchanan was certainly a theologian as well as a philosopher, but whereas the Calvinist resistance theories, including that of the Huguenots, were bound by a certain hermeneutical approach to scripture and bound by framing the disputes of the day in purely theological contexts, Buchanan brings natural law to the forefront of his argumentation and insists that it is not contrary to scripture. So we live in a time today when Christians are beginning to ask uh, some of the same foundational theological and philosophical questions that were asked during the Reformation. And we recognize that today we need more consistency in our integration of, the, of theology, natural law, and history. And so we need more of the same approach that George Buchanan took. Thank you.